You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual I was going to open last week's show with some thoughts about something that was bubbling up on queer Twitter, but then I got distracted by a shiny object or a slimy object, Rick Santorum. And instead I opened last week's show with my thoughts about a sudden discharge of Santorum, Santorum discharged by CNN. The thing I almost talked about last week, you know, honestly, I was worried I would just be amplifying some inane voices on Twitter. If I talked about it, it was just a couple of dumb tweets One read, please don't bring your kinks or fetishes to Pride. There are minors at Pride, and this can sexualize the event. Someone else said that kinksters at Pride make some people uncomfortable. And someone else said that they were a queer minor, and if they saw any kinksters at Pride, they were going to call the cops and have them arrested. So no police at Pride, unless someone shows up in a harness, in which case, call the cops. The debate about Kingsters of Pride went on to blow up all over queer Twitter and queer Instagram and led to dueling think pieces and big publications. It even made it into Roxanne Gay's column in the New York Times over the weekend. So instead of looking prescient by addressing it first, by getting to it at the top of last week's show, it's going to look like I'm playing catch up by talking about it at the top of this week's show. But I got to talk about it. First, asking people not to sexualize pride is to miss the point. Pride is literally a parade that celebrates people who aren't heterosexual or cisgender. Telling people not to sexualize pride is like telling people not to Irishize St. Patrick's Day. The Irishness is kind of the whole point. And the point is that who we are sexually isn't something we should be ashamed of or have to hide, even if that makes some people uncomfortable. There have been arguments in the queer community about how queer people should behave in public, about what we should wear and how we should act, long before the first Pride Parade kicked off. The first Pride Parade, which took place in New York City in June of 1970, to mark the first anniversary of the Stonewall Riots. Quick proof that God loves the gays? There were other gay bars in New York City the police could have raided that night in June of 1969. The Stonewall Riots could have just as easily have been the Kooky Riots or the Ramrod Riots. Anyway, for the record, kinksters have always been a part of Pride. The woman credited with making the first Pride Parade happen, an organizer named Brenda Howard, sometimes called the mother of Pride, she was kinky herself and bisexual and polyamorous. And she brought all that. She brought everything she was to that first Pride Parade in 1970. The movement for gay rights, for LGBTQ rights, didn't start at Stonewall or during that first Pride Parade. The movement already existed. An earlier gay rights organization, the Mattachine Society, which was founded in 1950, with the Daughters of Belitis, a lesbian organization, organized picket lines outside the White House in 1965. And they had a dress code for their picket lines. Men had to wear jackets and ties, women had to wear skirts and blouses, and no hand-holding or public displays of affection allowed. The idea, then, was to put an unthreatening public face on homosexuals and lesbians. And before you roll your eyes and dismiss those picketers as cowardly assimilationists, these protests took place at a time when you could lose your job 
and become unemployable and get thrown out of your apartment and not be able to get a new one and get arrested and get thrown in jail for being gay. It was also a time when you could expect to be disowned by your family. So you had no one to fall back on after you lost your job and your apartment for being openly gay. Those picketers outside the White House in their ties and jackets and skirts and blouses, they weren't cowards. They were incredibly brave. But after Stonewall, heading out of the 60s and into the 70s, the feeling was to hell with trying to fit in or tame ourselves down, to hell with respectability politics. We were going to be ourselves. We were going to love ourselves and each other and be who we were and do it in public. And if that made some people uncomfortable, too bad. They might not like it, but they're going to have to get used to it. They're going to have to get used to us. And some of us are kinky. And I got to say, people who spend all their time worrying about seeing kinksters at Pride remind me of a certain type. They remind me of all those right-wing Christian fundamentalists out there who insist that seeing gay people in public at the Pride Parade or anywhere else makes them uncomfortable because it forces them to think about all the gay sex all the gays are having in their gay apartments with their gay boyfriends. It's a cliche that these guys, and they're mostly guys, it's a cliche that these guys, guys who are offended by the sight of the most mainstream, sedately dressed, gender-conforming gay people holding hands in public, it is a cliche that these guys often turn out to be gay themselves. Messy closet cases externalizing an internal conflict. The conflict that's so often resolved by a rent boy scandal that that's become a cliche too. So, yeah, when I read tweets from people saying they don't want to see kinksters at Pride, when they say it makes them uncomfortable because they don't want to think about kinksters and all the kinky shit the kinksters do with their kinky friends, yeah, there's more than one way to externalize an internal conflict and more than one internal conflict that can be externalized. It's a tell that the anti-kink at Pride people want to weaponize children in the same way homophobes do. Two men holding hands, say the homophobes. How will I explain this to my children? Well, some men love each other. Some women love each other. Easy, obvious, age-appropriate explanation. Oh, a man in a puppy mask and a dog collar. How will I explain this to my children? Some adults love to dress up and play and pretend. Easy, obvious, age-appropriate explanation. Do you want to explain to your kids that some men love men and some women love women and some people are bi and some people are trans? Don't bring your kids to pride. Do you want to explain to your kids that some adults like to play and pretend and wear crazy outfits? Don't bring your kids to pride. Can't stand the sight of kinky people? Don't bring yourself to pride. And to anyone out there who is seriously freaked out about what kids might see at pride, just wait until you get a load of what kids can see on their phone. And before we start, a quick shout out to Tristan Torres. He's a 14-year-old gay kid growing up in a small town in Ohio. Tristan wore a pride flag to school and was assaulted. Another student tore the flag off him, knocked him down, punched him, choked him. And Torres, with the support of his family, because our families are on our sides now, Tristan is fighting back. And just like you gotta love the name of the gay bar where the queers fought back in 1969, you got to love the name of the town where Tristan and his family are fighting back now. Defiance. That's the name of the town. Defiance, Ohio, population 16,000. The spirit of Stonewall can be found in Defiance. 
All right, coming up on today's show, the mysterious case of the melting dildos. Sarah Dysock from Early to Bed joins us to play Nancy Drew. That's on the micro version of the Savage Lovecast. And Dr. Tobias Kohler from the Mayo Clinic joins us to talk about vasectomies. And we may or may not have tricked Dr. Kohler from the Mayo Clinic into sticking around long enough to talk about ball busting, too. All that coming up on today's show. Hey, Dan. I have a quarantine success story I want to share. And it's more of a vaccine success story, I suppose. I'm in my mid-30s, long married to my sexy, awesome husband. We've got four kids. And the pandemic has been fucking hard. Homeschooling, all four of our children, working from home. My kids range between five and 15. So sex has been, it's been like really challenging to be able to have sex with my husband. My teenager's up till midnight. My five-year-old's up at dawn. We're tired. Um, But we make it work. We have a lot of great sexual compatibility. To get to the point... My husband's really into ass. That's his like focus of real erotic excitement and turn on. Um, but he's also got a really thick cock, like super girthy. So for me to take it in the ass, I have to warm up substantially. It takes me a long time. I have to be really turned on, really relaxed. Um, and I don't drink or smoke pot anymore and my life is so much better without those things but they used to be super helpful in that like relaxation to accommodate so without them it just takes a lot of time and time we've not been able to give to anal play in quarantine so in comes the vaccine thank god grandma came down and watched the kids for a couple of nights My honey and I got an Airbnb and took our fucking time in the middle of the day with like lights on, able to lube and eat ass and play with toys and butt plugs. And I got to talk dirty about how I was his filthy ass queen escort, which is something that has always turned me on. The idea that he might hire somebody for this anal play who can accommodate more than I you know, anatomically quite can. It was fucking amazing. And then finally, last week, the kids went back to school a few days a week. So for the first time in years and years and years and years, all four of my children are going to school at the same time. So my house is empty. And my husband came home from work early. And I pegged him in the ass. And we just did all the slow ass play that we haven't been able to do for a year. And it was amazing. So get vaccinated. So moms can fuck their husbands in the ass. Here's to vaccinated grandparents and here's to schools reopening. And here's hoping your 15 year old kid isn't also a Savage Lovecast listener or your mom. We like to start the show with a success story each week. That was a particularly great one with a great takeaway message. Get vaccinated, everybody, so you can fuck your husband if you've got one in the ass with a strap-on dildo, while your kids, if you've got them, are back at school. If you've got a great success story that you'd like to share, give us a call. We may start next week's show with your sex success story. Hey, Dan and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. I'm a 30-year-old queer woman living in Seattle. I've been seeing a couple for about a month now. I had an individual relationship with each 
woman in the couple. And it was not to my knowledge then, but now I know it was a poly under duress situation where one of the partners in the couple didn't want to be poly, but felt like she was going to lose the other partner if she didn't at least try it. And it blew up in all of our faces (laughs) and they broke up. Part of them breaking up is that me and the pud also broke up because she doesn't want to be poly. (laughs) So now I'm still dating the other partner and we've been dating for about a month. So not very long, but I still want to be there to emotionally support her in this time because, you know, she's going through a breakup, her and her girlfriend were together for five years and so it's a pretty significant relationship and she's sad about it and fair enough but her and I have only been dating for a month and I don't want to be her emotional life raft right now not that I don't want to care for her and be nurturing because I do I just can't be her saving grace right now and at the same time I don't want to just fall into the girlfriend-shaped hole that exists in her life now. I'm not going to just fill that space. So I'm just wondering if you could suggest some boundaries that might be good for me to set up with this partner to prevent me from just becoming her life after filling the girlfriend-sized hole in her life. So you want to care for her. You want to support her, this woman you're seeing. And this is the woman in the couple that used to exist. This is the woman who wanted to be Polly. And she was with someone who didn't want to be Polly, who you were also seeing. So you were seeing someone who was Polly under duress and you had a problem with that ethically. And yet you're dating the woman who issued the ultimatum to her former partner that resulted in her former partner agreeing to attempt polyamory or try polyamory, which is how she became a pud. This other woman was a pud, a Polly under duress person. And so that relationship is over and you're uncomfortable with the puttedness, the puttishness of the girl who's out of your life, the woman who's out of your life, but you're okay dating the woman who issued that ultimatum. And there's always an ultimatum. When someone's a putt, it's because the other partner said, we have to try this for the relationship is over. And a person agrees to try polyamory under duress. And you're with that woman, the woman who issued the ultimatum. And I don't necessarily have a problem with that, but I think based on your call, what I thought I heard at the beginning of your call, you might have a problem with that because you had a problem with seeing someone who was a pud, but not, it seems, dating someone or being with someone or continuing to see someone who made somebody else into a pud. All right, just something to think about, just something I wanted to highlight. Now, you say you want to care for this woman and you want to support her, but you don't want to be her emotional life raft. And while you do care about her, you don't want to be her saving grace You don't want to be responsible for filling the girlfriend-shaped hole in her life. So you want to care, but you don't want to care too much. And so how do you Goldilocks this? How do you care just right? I I don't know. I mean, you're either dating this woman or you're not dating this woman. Either you're occupying some of the space in her life that a girlfriend used to occupy or you're not occupying that space. You ask about how to establish a boundary. Well, I think here's a boundary you could establish – 
if you feel this ambiguous about this relationship, if you want in but not so far in, stop calling her your partner, first of all. You've only been dating her for a month. I think that's way too soon to slap the partner label on it. And perhaps it's the slapping of the partner label on it that's making you feel a little bit anxious about perhaps overpromising, making a bigger promise than you're able to deliver onto this woman about how much, I guess, emotional labor you're going to be able to do for her as she processes the grief of the end of her previous relationship. And it sounds like you were, if not, not the cause of it, you were involved in the circumstances that led to the end of that relationship. They weren't sexually compatible. They didn't want the same thing out of a relationship. The woman you're with now wanted an open relationship or a polyamorous relationship, and her ex clearly didn't. But that's neither here nor there. Like, If you don't want to be sort of the girlfriend or the new girlfriend or the potential future new girlfriend, you should step back from this relationship. But it's going to be really hard to find that sweet spot. You can establish boundaries all day long. You can draw lines all day long, but trying to find the sweet spot where you're offering her care, but not too much care, emotional support, but not too much emotional support where you're there for her, but not creating a sense of obligation that makes you feel constrained or feel like you've overcommitted during this time in her life where she's going through this breakup and there you are. And maybe she's clinging to you a little hard. Yeah, I don't think you're going to be able to draw lines around that that make you feel comfortable in this relationship. So my advice would be to get, at least for the moment, out of this relationship. Stop seeing this woman. Tell her you're going to take a step back and give her three months or six months to grieve the end of her five-year relationship. And after she's grieved it, if she wants to pick back up with you, if she wants to reconnect, begin to date you, she should give you a shout. But there's a chance that three months, six months from now, you may not hear that shout. She may feel rejected uh, by you as well after having been rejected by you as well and move on from you. So if you are interested in this woman and having a future with this woman, yeah, I think you're going to have to risk going all in at this moment filling that girlfriend-shaped hole in her life, in her lap. And if you can't do that, if you can't be there for her in the way she might need you to be there for her right now, I think maybe you need to get away from her. And maybe she needs to get away from you. Not get away from you because you're a bad person. You may be the right person. You may be a great person. You may be a very good person. And you may have been the right person for her. But you're not the right person for her at this time. Hi, Dan. Calling from a faraway country. As most of my friends have already been sick with COVID or vaccinated, I am planning to have an offline birthday party for my 30th birthday. I'm having a logistical issue, though. I would love to invite two of the people I'm currently dating, but not sure how to go about it so that people feel comfortable. The first one is my romantic friend with whom we started having sex recently. He is also pretty new in the city and doesn't have many friends. So I thought that going to a party would be a good opportunity for him to feel included. The other one could potentially become my boyfriend, but I guess we're just not there yet. They know about each other and are cool about it, but haven't met in person. All three of us are dating other people, but it is not a polyamorous arrangement. And I think I could take it exclusive with one of them 
if we ever get there. Could you please let me know your thoughts, whether there is an ethical way to include both of these great men into my celebration? All right, this one's almost too easy. Yes, there is an ethical way for you to include both of these men. You invite them both. You tell each of them that the other will be there. And if one or the other or both of these wonderful guys have a problem with that or they're uncomfortable with that, then they can skip the party. Sorted. Done that for you. Congratulations on your 30th birthday. I just want to highlight that you called it an offline birthday party, which I think is really interesting. We had so much online activity over the last year that now activities aren't just activities. They're offline activities. We have to qualify them like that. And I got to say, before I let you go, if poly is off the table, hmm, polyamory isn't something you're interested in. seems to me that you are dating more than one person. You have feelings for both of these guys and they know about each other. So it's all above board. It's all ethical. And if that's not polyamory, well, it's so close to polyamory that you can smell polyamory's breath. Again, happy birthday. I hope the party's a big success and I hope both these guys come. Hey, Dan, I really liked your discussion recently about sex toys and the material that they're made of. And it really reminded me of something I wanted to ask you. I recently got a dildo and it kind of melted in the uh, drawer that I kept it in. I didn't, it's not in a hot drawer or anything like it's just in my bedroom and like two of my dildos melted into each other and kind of at a 90 degree angle. It was like weird, but obviously it's ruined. And I think it has to do with the material that it's made of and it interacting with uh, another material. I don't know. Any idea? Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Sarah Dysock, owner of Early to Bed, Chicago's feminist sex shop. Hey, Sarah, thanks for jumping on the phone. Thanks for coming back on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I have a hunch about what might be going on in that drawer with all those dildos, but you're the expert, so I'm going to defer. What is the deal? Oh, well, it is very clear to me that the caller has some mystery meat dildos (laughs) made out of God knows what, and that is totally how you can expect them to behave by melting into each other, interacting in weird ways. So yeah, it is a low quality sex toy that they have. So define mystery meat dildo. That's a hilarious phrase. I think it's really evocative, but what do you mean by mystery meat dildo? Well, I use it to mean anything that's not silicone, that is made of materials that we're just not sure what they are. Like this industry is unregulated and no one tells you what's in their weird, smelly, kind of strange PVC sex toys. And so I call them mystery meat because we don't really know what's in them. A lot of them will give off a weird smell or they'll be really volatile. So they will like melt with each other or they could transfer color between two toys that they're touching each other. So yeah, anything that's not 100% silicone and it's soft, I put in the mystery meat department. And you shouldn't put mystery meat dildos in your drawer next to your other dildos, but also not in your body is my guess. I recommend no, if it's that, if it's something that is, you're not sure what it's made out of, you don't necessarily want to put it in your body. And um, I highly recommend, I mean, silicone toys are so affordable nowadays, ditch your toys that are jelly or whatever. And if you do have jelly toys or mystery meat toys that you insist on using, I highly recommend using condoms with them and keeping them in separate fabric bags in your drawer so they don't melt into each other. Uh, I'm going to go with your first recommendation, though, which is to throw those things the fuck away and get some quality 
sex toys, <laughs> which usually means going, you know, not to sex toys or us, not buying your dildos at the truck stop. That means going to a store like early to bed, going to a feminist progressive store online or brick and mortar where you're assured of some quality. Cause like you said, this industry is unregulated and if you're buying sex toys at the novelty shop or some scummy place, you're going to get a scummy dildo that's going to melt in your drawer because it's made out of napalm or God knows what. Exactly. I couldn't, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. If you can find a retailer that you can trust, then you know that the sex toys that you are getting are going to be body safe and they're going to last longer, right? Like why not invest in a toy that can be, your buddy for a long period of time as opposed to something that's basically disposable. Yeah, those those jelly ones, the mystery meat dildos, are cheaper, but a dildo that you invest in can be your friend for a very long time. And there are materials other than silicone. There are quality, now ceramic, glass, stainless steel, steel. toys. Yeah. So it doesn't have to be silicone, medical-grade silicone preferably. You have other options, but... Never, never the, the the jelly option. And the issue for this caller is he bought a cheap ass dildo, put it in a drawer next to another cheap ass dildo, and they exploded. Exactly, and that happens all the time. What you can expect from those types of toys, for sure. Where can people find Early to Bed online? Uh, you can find Early to Bed online at early the number two bed dot com, or you can just search Google Early to Bed Chicago, and we'll come up. Sarah Dysock, owner of Early to Bed Chicago's Feminist Sex Toy Shop. Thank you so much for jumping in the phone. It's always a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. My pleasure as well. Hi, Dan. I am a 30-year-old heterosexual woman calling from the South, and I'm calling with a question about a cousin of mine. Um, so to give you all a little bit of background, we come from a really conservative Southern Baptist family, um, and about half the family actively works in evangelical ministry. And despite the fact that me and a couple other cousins are pretty liberal and not very religious, um, we are a pretty close-knit close, close -knit family. This cousin of mine was outed to me this week because she is apparently dating my high school best friend's cousin, who is out to her family, and so I found out through my best friend. So I don't know if my cousin is aware that I am friends with her girlfriend's cousin, right? I don't know if she knows that there's a link there, but I, I'm wondering what to do with this information. Um, and maybe the answer is nothing, but part of me does want to reach out to her and let her know, you know, that I'm on her side and I support her. I think she probably knows that already, but I do imagine it could kind of take a weight off her shoulders, um, that she doesn't have to have that coming out conversation with everybody over and over again. She's pretty, she's pretty introverted. And I could imagine that kind of being relieving for her, but I also could imagine it being super stressful for her because it kind of opens the gates to, okay, do I have to come out to the family now? Or, you know, I feel like it, it does take a little bit of control away from her coming out process. Um, so I'm just trying to be sensitive to that. And I don't want her to feel like I violated her privacy, um, which I, I feel like I sort of did. But, you know, I just want to be supportive and I just want her to know that I love her and that I will go to bat for her if any of our conservative evangelical family tries to kick her out. How do you think you might have violated her privacy? By having a, a friend? By having a friend who's dating your cousin? That's not violating your cousin's privacy unless you hacked your friend's email to discover who she was dating and that's how you found out that she was dating your cousin. No, you didn't violate anybody's privacy. You know what you know. And I think that you should 
let your cousin know that you know it and immediately let her know after you let her know that you know it immediately tell her that you're not going to say anything to anyone else in your, I'm sorry, horrible sounding family. You're not going to say anything to other relatives, to her parents. You're not going to say anything to anyone. You just wanted her to know that you love and support her and that if she needs an ally, you're there, you're on her side, that she is someone in her extended horrible, but not entirely horrible family that she can open up to and that she can reach out to. And if it ever comes to it, that she is outed or decides to come out and there is a shit show that there will be someone in her family from her family that is on her side, that is in her corner. Yeah. It's entirely possible that hearing from you, particularly about this is going to freak her out at least initially, but way that momentary freak out before you reassure her that you're not going to say anything to anybody weigh that initial freak out against the isolation that she may feel the sense that her entire family is arrayed against her. And that if she should ever come out that she will lose her entire family, you know, a girlfriend, this woman that she's dating now, girlfriends, particularly early in life, they come and go. There's not a lot of security in a girlfriend. And if her girlfriend's all that she has or feels that she's all she has, she may stick it out in a relationship that's not very good for her, not casting any aspersions on your friend. But, you know, we've all seen it. Somebody who is entirely dependent on a romantic partner is less likely to walk away from that romantic partner even when they need to. And just for her to know that she's not entirely dependent on that girlfriend, that she has family. And that she has family that loves and accepts her and knows, knows that she's queer. Ideally, we find out family members are queer when they tell us, when they come out to us. There are times, however, when we find out because our queer relatives are out there in the world dating people. That's something that you do publicly. And people have a right to confide in their friends, as I assume your friend confided in you, which is how you found out that she was dating your cousin. People have a right to confide in their friends about their relationships and share the details of their relationships. And once we're dating, we can't control necessarily who knows or how far that has spread. And so it got to you. It got to you that your cousin is dating your friend and that your cousin is queer and you should reach out to your cousin, err on the side of offering her your support even if it freaks her out that you found out, she needs to know that dating is a public thing. You found out other people could find out. She may want to get ahead of that, get out in front of it and come out to her family when she's in a good place where she can come out to them from a position of strength. And if she wants to do that, she's got an ally. She's got an ally in the family who's going to be in her corner. That person is you. Let her know. Hey, Dan, I'm a 31-year-old cis gay man in the Northeast. I've got kind of a dilemma for you. A couple of years ago, I went on vacation with some friends and met a guy there. And it was, on my end at least, platonic. I wasn't interested sexually or romantically. Uh, but we spent a good uh, weekend together, exchanged numbers, and then went back to our respective cities. I think I saw him maybe one other time that summer, but it was all platonic. Fast forward to this year, and I got a job near him in his same city. And so we get in contact again. We set up a, a time to meet up for coffee and catch up. And it was cute. We, we had a good time, and we set up another time to hang out, this time for dinner. 
well, dinner turned to drinks and drinks turned to smokes. And you guessed it, smoking turned to sex. So I go home thinking, wow, I think I might have found a, a really good friends with benefits. But Dan, since then, he's been sending me texts, not texts. He's been sending me memes on Instagram every day, sometimes two, three times a day. And, you know, I'm I'm friendly and I um, I laugh at them and like them and respond, but it's a little too much. And I'm wondering if I have the responsibility to say to him, you know, this amount of communication is just too much for me. And if you can even really call it communication, he just sends messages with no words hardly ever. For context, I'm married. We um, have a beautiful open relationship that works really well for us going on six years he knows that. He knows my husband. My husband knows him. And they've talked. They've never met in person. So I know that he's not, you know, trying, uh, you know, to make a move or anything. He knows I'm not available romantically. So I'm just wondering, am I just being a jerk? Should I just let him, you know, wear himself out? Uh, do I, should I tell him that, you know, this amount of communication is too much? Or, you know, should I just let it go? Am I just being a jerk? Stop being polite. Stop giving this guy positive reinforcement when he sends you a meme and then sends you another one and sends you another one. And each time he sends a meme, you laugh, you LOL, you send the crying laughter, smiley face back at him. Whatever you're doing is giving him the impression that you're enjoying this, that you like memes and receiving memes just as much as he likes sending them and receiving them himself. Stop it. You can't expect someone who doesn't have the common sense to realize that most people don't want to receive a random barrage of memes every day from a casual acquaintance, even one that they've just had sex with. You can't expect someone without that kind of common sense to pick up on the fact that you're not really into this, particularly if you're sending him LOLs and crying and laughter, smiley faces, emojis back at him. So stop that. Stop sending positive reinforcement. Stop responding to anything he sends you that isn't a text, that isn't a come fuck me or whatever it is that you do want to hear from him or about his day or about politics or something else. Don't respond to anything that isn't something that you would like to get from him. And you could model some good behavior for him if you'd like and send him the kind of text messages that you would like to receive from him. But if he doesn't stop sending you memes after you stop giving him all this positive reinforcement when he sends you memes, you're going to have to use your words and risk hurting his feelings. And there is very little at stake here. You're not interested in dating him. He's a casual acquaintance. You've met up with him a few times in the last few years. If he gets all butthurt when you say, please stop sending me all these memes. I don't really enjoy memes. I don't really get memes, but I'm happy to see you again and hang out. And I really enjoy talking with you. Let's do more of that. If he gets all butthurt because you say you don't want memes anymore, yeah, you don't want him around. And if you tell him to stop sending you memes and he keeps sending you memes, well, that's sort of the, I guess, lowest of low-grade, low-bore, low-key consent violations. Please don't do this. Please stop doing this. And someone keeps doing that. Whatever it is, thoughtlessly, eh, probably not somebody you want to be in bed with again. And in his defense, there's lots of people out there who are constantly swapping memes. It's almost a language that some people speak. Some people regard it as a kind of currency. Others regard 
forwarding memes as a substitute for a personality. I don't know what's going on with him. I do know what's going on with you, though. You're hesitant to use your words to tell the truth, and that's the quickest way you could make this stop. So, no more positive reinforcement. If the memes keep coming, use your words. If he gets upset and doesn't want to see you again, good riddance. Hi, Dan. Midwest Gay here in my 30s. I've fallen a little bit behind on the Savage Love Cast. I've been trying to catch up, but in the past episode, you talked about being so nervous around guys you found attractive and how when you met Terry after your friend forced you to talk to him, and I've never felt closer to you. I am so nervous meeting men in person, trying to pick up guys at bar, etc. All the guys I've met have been through one of the apps, and I'm a firm believer that the gay apps can be terrible for your self-esteem and self-worth, and they have definitely affected me, and I'm trying to get away from them. But I'm terrified. I'm socially awkward when I first meet people. I'm terrible at small talk. I'm the guy at the house party that follows his one friend around the whole night because I don't want to be left alone. And at the end of the day, I think it all has to do with my self-esteem and being comfortable with myself. On top of that, I suffer from depression, and the thought of people rejecting me in person worries me. It makes me worry that it's just going to feed the depression I already have. Uh, any advice? I was thinking like maybe I need anxiety meds or like uh, social anxiety meds. Maybe I just need to keep doing it until I'm just numb to the whole situation. I just really don't know what to do or where to start. If you think medications for your anxiety or depression might help you, that's something to discuss with a psychiatrist, with somebody who can prescribe those medications to you after doing an evaluation. What I'm going to share with you are a couple of tips, a little bit of background on how I met Terry uh, and how I learned to be comfortable or found environments where I could be comfortable socializing with people. I couldn't just go to a house party. Ugh, there are no two words jammed together that inspire more terror in my heart than the word house sitting next to the word party and having to go to a house party. I too am the kind of person who cannot be separated from the whoever it is that I arrived at that house party with for even a moment. I am too self-conscious and I have uh, too much trouble initiating conversations with people that I don't know or making small talk even with people that I may know casually. I'm just too socially inept for that. So for the most part, I don't go to house parties. What I have done all my life is found ways to make myself useful. That person who forced me to introduce myself to Terry that night I saw Terry at that bar. I wasn't just hanging out at that bar. I didn't go out to the bar alone. It was a bar where I had a theater. It was a bar where I did shows. It was a bar where I had gotten to know everyone who worked there because I worked there. And the person working coat check, I got to know. I'd actually cast her, a terrific drag performer in Seattle at the time, Ginger Vitus, cast her in a few of my shows. And we had become friends, not because I walked up to a drag queen in a bar and said, can we be friends? That's not how adults get to be friends. It's not how adults become comfortable and in you know, rooms full of people they barely know. The way adults make new friends and I think adults like me and maybe like you get more comfortable in a room full of strangers is to have something that we're there to do, to have a job. I was always much more comfortable when I was, you know, a waiter and a cater waiter, being at a party where I was the cater waiter than being at a party where I was one of the guests. If I had glasses to clear or food to serve, I knew what I was doing. I had a reason to be there. I had something to occupy me and in some ways distract me from my 
social ineptitude. I would encourage you to find environments where you have a role to play, whether those are volunteer environments, whether it's getting a job in one of the gay bars in your city a couple of nights a week for a while. So you get to know people and then real friendships and real connections will grow from that. And so, you know, I mentioned that, you know, I have no game, saw that hot guy dancing at this bar and the drag queen who's working coat check, who I had been bending the ear of about how pretty that guy was when he walked up to us said, you have to introduce yourself, say something to him. You've been saying it to me all night. The backstory to that was I had the keys to that bar. I had worked at that bar for a couple of years. I knew everybody there because we were coworkers. And I was much more comfortable hanging out and talking with not some random drag queen working coach check about the hot guy on the other side of the bar, but Ginger, a coworker, a colleague, a friend, someone because we had worked on plays together, we had discovered that we had a rapport and we enjoyed each other's company. And I felt less anxious in Ginger's company than anywhere else in the bar that night. That's probably why I was leaning against the window of the coach check stand chit-chatting with Ginger and not – making the rounds through the room. So find a place where you can make yourself useful. Find a place where you have a job to do. It doesn't have to be gay bars. Go and volunteer for some organization, some campaign, some effort. Meet people and get out there and pick an issue or pick an organization that's gay or queer, working on LGBT rights, and you'll meet other queer people. And then you can hang out with them. Or if you're out somewhere and you feel uncomfortable, you will see one of them on the other side of the room and you can go talk to them. Maybe they'll be working coat check and maybe there'll be a cute guy on the dance floor. And maybe you'll notice the cute guy and your coat check friend will notice you notice the cute guy. And then when the cute guy walks up to coat check to get something out of the pocket of his jacket, we still don't know what. Your friend, your colleague, this person that you've gotten to know because you had something to do together with that person will order you to say something to the cute boy from the dance floor and you'll meet somebody too. And I was, you say you're in your 30s, I was 30 when I met Terry. So it's not too late. Put yourself out there, make connections, find spaces that then you can be in where you are more comfortable because you have established connections with other people in that space like I did with everybody who worked at Rebar in Seattle back in the day, which is where I met Terry. Hi, Dan, 36-year-old cis straight male here from the east coast calling with a question about vasectomies so i have known for quite a while that i don't want to have biological children and i recently made the decision to get a vasectomy it just felt like it was the right choice for me i made the appointment a few months ago and it was going to be in the next couple of weeks that i would get it and i sort of i chickened out at the last moment and i canceled the vasectomy not because i'm having any kind of second thoughts about having a family or rather having biological children uh but rather because i came across a lot of people on the internet saying that a lot of men more men than the medical profession is generally aware of have post vasectomy pain syndrome my doctor brought this up in the consultation, but he said the chances are vanishingly rare, one in a thousand or less. But then when I look online, I see people saying, and actually pointing to different studies, saying that maybe it's 5%, maybe it's even 15%. Now, I'm of two minds about this, right? Because on one hand, I know that if you Google a medical problem, you're going to come up with the worst advice possible. So it feels like maybe turning to the internet was a bad idea and I'm 
scared for no good reason. But on the other hand, you know, I've heard so many stories from my female friends about going on hormonal birth control and the doctor saying that there would be no complications with that. And then in their own experience, they start taking hormonal birth control and they feel really awful and they have to end up stopping it, discontinuing it. Of course, there's no way to discontinue a vasectomy. So it seems like the stakes are very high there. So my question is, what is up with post-vasectomy pain syndrome? How prevalent is it? Is it something that we should all be worrying about quite a bit more? Or did I just freak myself out unnecessarily by turning to Reddit and Google for medical advice? Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Dr. Toby Kohler, professor of urology and head of Mayo Men's Health. Hey, Dr. Kohler, how are you? Very well, thank you. Thanks for having me today. Thank you for agreeing to come out and talk about this. Just to like put our conflicts of interest on the table straight away, you perform vasectomies, correct? I do. And is this something you've had to reassure men about, this PVPS? What is up with PVPS? This caller would like to know. I'm sure you've had to address this with other nervous potential vasectomy patients. Absolutely. It's uh, very normal for men to have a lot of questions about uh, vasectomy and you know getting operated on in the scrotal area. Lord knows whenever anybody wants to cut my sack open, I have questions. <laughs> I think that's the normal response, which we expect. Anybody who is like, just just go, doc. I worry a little bit about those people. So anyway, the issue with postpectomy pain syndrome is that it's it's a relatively rare condition, but a few percent of men after they get their vasectomy sometimes develop testicular pain or scrotal pain. And in this case, it's a type of pain that really lasts greater than three months and is really bothersome. It forces men to seek another appointment. So it's one of the you know risks affiliated with a vasectomy, and it's you know in clinical practice I do a bunch of vasectomies, and it's pretty rare that I actually see this condition. But I think the caller who raised concerns is quite astute, and um, indeed, if you kind of look in the literature and check check on these things, traditionally about one to two percent of men we that's the risk we quote that you may have chronic scrotal pain. Uh, after a vasectomy, and that that can be associated with a negative impact on your quality of life. But of those men who have this chronic scrotal pain, very few need additional surgery, and uh, the majority of them kind of get better with kind of more conservative approaches. Now, when you say a few percent, you're you're saying like I did what the caller did, which you're not supposed to do, and Google did, <laughs> and found everything yeah. from. Uh, one in 1,000 or 0.01% to 5% to 15%. The studies seem to be all over the place. And I followed some of the links and they were two studies. It wasn't two Trumpkins making shit up in their basements. It wasn't QAnon people <laughs> lying about vasectomies because they lie about everything. It seemed to be yeah. studies. I didn't have the time to check if they were uh, in peer-reviewed journals, but it seemed sound enough that if it was my sack about to get cut open, I would be alarmed. Even if it was the one in 1,000, chronic scrotal pain, a one in 1,000 risk, it seems high to me. Yeah, I, I, to I totally get it. You know, there's a couple issues at play here. Number one, we used to say one to 2% of men can get this uh, and very few would need additional surgery or, or, or you know, that would really, really be bothersome to them in terms of negative impact quality of life. And that's based on data that was put together a few years ago from the guidelines from the American Urologic Association. There have been recent meta-analyses, though, which are kind of the highest form of science published. And it shows that, that you know, the chronic 
pain rate, post-flexomy pain syndrome, may be in the range between 3 and 7% based on some meta-analyses. The issue, though, is it's really difficult to know if, number one, is the chronic scroll pain from the vasectomy or would have happened anyway. And number two, you know, how do you define uh, a really a bothersome problem that affects men's lives, right? So there's, when you do these meta-analyses, you have to keep in mind that different investigators will ask the question differently. Uh, they'll use different pain scores. They'll define the condition slightly differently. So, you know, yeah, I think it's reasonable to say, yeah, there are risks with this procedure and there is a possibility that you could have scrotal pain as a result of the procedure. Most of the time it gets better without having to do anything invasive to address it. And in the few times where it does persist, you know, there are options that can actually treat the condition and sometimes, yes, it requires a second surgery to get rid of you know, the discomfort. So, you know, the question I think the people have to ask themselves are what are the alternatives to getting a vasectomy and what are the risks and benefits of those things, right? So if you look at the United States, about 6% of men get vasectomy. And interestingly, about 6% of the guys who get vasectomy ultimately want to have it reversed. But the alternatives um, don't come without risks either, whether it's tubal ligation in the female partner or the long-term effect of uh, birth control pills in women. I mean, there's always somewhat of a price to pay for a procedure that's going to ensure sterility. And other than abstinence... You which, left kids off that list of yeah. potential negative outcomes if you don't get the vasectomy. <laughs> that's, that is absolutely true. So, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of value judgment of you know, what are my best options available to ensure that I have the exact number of kids I want in my family and I want to minimize the risk to my partner and overall affect my health in the most positive way. Or as in the caller's case, wants no kids. Some people want to be childless, exactly. not just have a certain number of kids. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Some people's ideal family size is, you know, zero children. And that's totally cool. And so I think um, you have to take these risk and benefits discussion on any procedure in the context of the other alternatives. And, you know, the vasectomy is like the, the highest success rate in terms of ensuring sterility. It beats all the other ones. And so, you know, there are risks and benefits to everything we do in medicine. And so, yes, there's a small risk of this happening. It's treatable. And, you know, that's something you just have to be willing, a risk you have to be willing to take if you're going to get the procedure. I'm a little concerned. Some of my listeners are into ball busting are into ball pain. I'm worried about some people coming in for recreational vasectomies that they don't need in hopes of chronic scrotal <laughs> pain. But I want to I want to back up to something you said just a minute ago that some people get a vasectomy, develop chronic scrotal pain, but that doesn't prove that the chronic scrotal pain was related to the vasectomy. I know correlation ain't causation, as they say in science, but that seems like almost a slam dunk correlation causation blur. That he got a vasectomy and then in the wake of it, you develop scrotal pain. I, I have a hard time wrapping my head around how that can be random chance. Well, it's not random. If you look at the number of visits uh, in the United States for orcalgia or testicular pain or scrotal pain, it's crazy. It's like $55 million per year annual cost. It accounts for 2 to 5% of all new urology clinic visits and about 1% of all clinic visits for young men in the United States. So remember that if 1% of all visits in the United States are for testicular pain, but only 6% of uh, the population get a vasectomy, you can see how you could have uh, both happening at the same time, right? You get a vasectomy and then you also develop 
future testicular pain that is maybe not related to the vasectomy. Okay, that makes sense. One per, 1% of all visits yeah. to urologists are about testicular pain. Only 6% of the male population gets a vasectomy and only a tiny percentage of the men who get a vasectomy develop testicular pain. It would nowhere come to that 1% figure of the general population is what you're saying. Right. And if I, if I can just correct you, it's 1% of all visits, not just urology visits, all like primary care visits for young men are for squirrel pain and three to 5% of all urologic visits ah, are ah. squirrel pain. So it's actually a, a big portion of the population. Uh, people get pain down there and sometimes we have a good explanation and a lot of times we don't. How often is that explanation blue balls? Uh, well, in terms of I'm not having enough sex and thus um, I'm having a pain in my scrotum, that is lower lower on the list of uh, the most most likely causes. You know, I think 30, 40% of the time we never have a good explanation. Like idiopathic uh, is. And so patients have to remember that you know, clearly medicine does not have all the answers. And the more that I work in the medical field and do urology for a living, the only thing I'm certain of is uncertainty. Uh, so that's, that's number one. But in terms of like the breakdown of general testicular pain, sometimes it's from a trauma to the area. Sometimes it's from like lower back pain. So a very, very common thing is if you have like a back injury or like a car accident or something, you can get referred pain down in the scrotum. And so often you end up getting MRIs and stuff to diagnose testicular pain, which is pretty interesting. So just to set the caller at ease, uh, I continued down the rabbit hole a little bit when I was reading the Wikipedia pages and the Reddit subs about this. And it seemed that there were treatments uh, that you could reverse the vasectomy, that there were uh, there's a treatment around cutting a nerve into the scrotum. And these treatments for chronic scrotal pain in the wake of a vasectomy had very high success rates. So the low chance you might develop chronic scrotal pain after a vasectomy, the interventions, if you develop it, they're generally very successful. That is correct. So in general, when we do surgery for pain, it's always a, a little bit of a risky proposition, especially if we don't know what the root cause of the pain is, right? Remember I said that 30 to 40% of men who have squirrel pain, we can't identify a source. Those guys do not respond as well as to the guys who get a vasectomy. They have an obvious area that hurts them since the vasectomy. If we cut that area out, or indeed if we reverse the vasectomy, which you know is possible, uh, the pain really tends to get better. So there are good treatments available for most men that have chronic scrotal pain, especially ones that are you know, reproducible on physical exam and are a direct result of vasectomy. So while I have you on the phone, I'm wondering if I can toss a question at you that has nothing to do with vasectomies, but does have something to do with scrotal pain. Of course. There are people out there, there are men, t- testicle havers, who are into induced scrotal pain, who are into ball busting, who are into uh, ball crushers, which are sex toys that you can buy and on Amazon and in real decent sex toy stores and who may, you know, who like to get kicked in the ball. Some guys, what's the risk mm-hmm. there? What besides everything in moderation, including moderation, it, my callers <laughs> who are into this stuff would never forgive me if I got a urologist, a professor of urology and the head of the Mayo clinics, men's health on the phone. It didn't say, didn't ask like how much risk are they running the ball crushers and the ball busters and the guys who like to get kicked in the nuts. In terms of, you know, the risk of some of these behaviors, I think we have to uh, yield to common sense, right? Um, and clearly, if you're hitting somebody in the scrotum with a sledgehammer, you could, you know, 
busk the testicle open, and that would create a big hematoma or blood clot in the area, would require a surgery to fix. And then if those men want a future fertility, it would be very important to kind of put the testicle back together again. Because if you leave the testicle open and exposed, all the the sperm-making material that lives on the inside of the testicle kind of just melts away. Testicles have two jobs in life, make sperm, make testosterone. So if you damage those, those are the things that you will compromise potentially. And so no sledgehammers is your advice, but <laughs> everything else yeah. goes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, use common sense that that wins in the end. Uh, clearly, if you're having, let's say you do a behavior and you get significant swelling thereafter, if you have pain that isn't resolving, go to the ER and get it checked out. Uh, there are pretty easy ways to do a quick scrotal ultrasound of the area to make sure that the, the testicle isn't damaged or that it's intact. If you have something called an expanding hematoma, where all of a sudden your scrotum starts swelling and it starts to change in various sizes from, you know, pick pick what you like, sporting equipment or fruit, you know, from a lime to a uh, a lemon to a grapefruit to a cantaloupe. If it keeps getting bigger, clearly that's something you need to address. But yeah, common sense is going to win in the end. And you don't want to accidentally rupture a testicle, but it takes a lot of force. If the sledgehammer is the metaphor you've used, it takes a lot of force to rupture a testicle. So it does, you know, the body's pretty, uh, it's pretty smart. So uh, there's two testicles for a reason to have some reserve built in. (laughs) An air and a spare, as the Brits might say. That's correct. And also, um, you know, the testicles have a system where they try to protect themselves. So when you're cold or when you're anxious and your testicles retract up into your body, and that's a protective mechanism. So you're not, you know, vulnerable to battle, if you will, uh, so that the testicles are, are protected. So yeah, you know, the body does a lot to help protect the fertility and uh, listen to it. If it's telling you it hurts, it's probably a suboptimal thing to do if you want to preserve your, your fertility or your testosterone function for the future. Dr. Toby Kohler, professor of urology and head of the Mayo Men's Health. Dr. Kohler, thank you so much for jumping on the phone and for having a sense of humor about me ambushing you at the end of the call about vasectomies with Paul Buster. <laughs> no worries, man. Uh, you're welcome. Have a great day. You too. Take Thanks care, so much. Hey, Dan and Nancy, 41-year-old female living in the Midwest. I'm newly dating this guy for about two months. Before we even had our first coffee date, I researched for court records. I've always done that before going on dates. I had noticed that there are three domestic violence cases that had orders of protection against him. Two of those were dropped immediately, and one was dropped within a couple of months, and he stands with no convictions of any of those charges. Fast forward to last week. I get an anonymous piece of mail with screenshots of this prior record sent to me. Keep in mind, I already knew this record, and I have not seen any red flags or signs that alarm me in any way. Yet, I don't want to be that girl who just ignores all the signs and is oblivious. He has mentioned that he's had a temper in the past, but has grown past that stage in his life and is matured. I haven't mentioned to him about this anonymous piece of mail that I've received. What do you think I should do, Dan? You in danger, girl. If I may quote Whoopi Goldberg from Ghost, you in danger, girl. The person who sent you that packet in the mail anonymously with those domestic violence court orders against the guy you're dating, even if he never was convicted, that person somehow found out that you're dating this guy, tracked down your address, sent you this stuff in the mail to warn you, 
to warn you to get the fuck away from this guy. There's somebody out there who thinks or somebody out there who knows probably from personal experience that this guy's dangerous and they are letting you know that you have to take that kind of warning very seriously. He doesn't know what you know. He's told you, seems to have tried to get out in front of his records and told you that he used to have anger problems, but he has matured. There's a way that you can check that. You can tell him you did a background check on him. You can tell him that you discovered these orders of protection, these domestic violence cases, and then see how he reacts. See what you get from him. Now, I don't want to tell you that if what you get from him is sincere contrition and what may appear to you to be self-awareness about what he did and how he's grown past it, that you aren't then in danger, girl. There's a lot of abusers out there who talk a really good game. Very few people would wind up in relationships with abusers if abusers weren't on some level charming, charismatic, if they didn't draw people in. So just because he can talk a good game about these orders against him in the past in domestic violence cases doesn't mean that he's overcome his anger issues or that he isn't a threat to you. I wouldn't, though, mention if I were you that someone sent you that anonymous package in the mail with these court orders that you'd already discovered in it because I wouldn't want to put that person in danger if there's somebody out there who's warning women about this guy, obviously that's someone that he's probably dated in the past, probably one of the women who had to get these orders of protection against him. And if he knows that she's out there or actively trying to run interference to prevent other women from being victimized by him, he could go after her. He could retaliate. So leave that out. Leave out that somebody out there was nice enough to let you know, to warn you about this guy and just tell him that this is something that you've done that you do. You do background checks for your own safety. You discovered this and you want to hear about it from him. You want to hear what happened. You want to hear what he did, what he learned, how he changed. If he changed, if you get an angry reaction from him, if he blows up, all right, that's everything you need to know. Anger problem, not solved, not overcome. Get the fuck away from this guy. But you're really going to have to crack your bullshit detectors all the way up to 11 if he makes a convincing case, if he seems sincerely contrite and self-aware. That's not proof he's not a danger to you. I think you have more proof that you in danger, girl. I think you have more proof that you in danger, girl, with those orders of protection that you already found, these domestic violence cases, even if he was never convicted of domestic violence, and that there's this person out there who thought you needed to know this, who's trying to warn you, I think all of that tells me that you should get the fuck away from this guy, that he doesn't deserve the benefit of the doubt, and that the longer you keep dating him, girl, the more danger you're going to be in. Hi, Dan. I'm a pan-cis woman calling from the East Coast. I just began a non-monogamous relationship with somebody I met on a dating app in January, and we've already begun to build this incredibly open and trusting relationship. There's an age difference of nine years between us, and she's this gold star lesbian, and I spent most of my dating life involved with cis men, but this is not my first queer relationship. There was just this understood trust between us from the start, 
regardless of our differences. And I just felt really comfortable enough to disclose from the get-go that I am a sex worker. And I am also somebody who publicly advocates on behalf of the sex worker community in my town. So I feel no shame about my identity with them or what I do. And we talk about these things very openly. My problem is with me. For some reason, I can't finish orgasming when I'm with them. Our chemistry is fire. And I realize we're only four months in this relationship. So we're still in an acquaintance period. But they will get me so close to coming. And then all of a sudden, my brain just won't let it happen. It will just shut down any buildup that I have. No matter what we're doing, if it's with a strap on or with fingers or a vibrator, I'll just like something in my brain just won't let it happen. And I'll start like some thoughts will come out. Like I'll start thinking about how if she were paying me, then this would be hotter and I would come. Or if she had a bio penis, then maybe I'd have no problem coming. It's like all of these heteronormative demons come out or horophobic demons just like refuse to let me orgasm unless I'm the one whose finger is on the trigger. And I feel so much shame when I have to like take over and bring myself to finish, like ashamed that I couldn't give her the satisfaction of bringing me to orgasm. I am so attracted to her, but is there some internalized pan or biphobia at play here or internalized horphobia? Any tips you have to help my overworked brain chill the fuck out? Because honestly, I'm ready to just rewire this whole system. It's so frustrating and it makes me feel really sad. So any help or any advice you have, I'm all ears. So am I correct in inferring from your call that when you're with a paying client or you're with a, a somebody with a bio penis that you don't have any problem climaxing? I actually keep myself from <laughs> climaxing with clients. It's like how I compartmentalize. One person recently almost made me come and I was like mad about it. <laughs> oh, well, that's very telling. And I think that might be <laughs> part of the problem here. You are used to getting very close to the edge and then holding back, bearing down, preventing mm -hmm. yourself from coming with clients. And I'm curious why that is. Is it just that you don't want to give that to your clients? You don't want to feel that open to your clients? You don't want to waste that on your clients? Yeah. Why, why are you drawing that line? Uh, like an arbitrary boundary that and I don't want to say arbitrary it was a boundary I chose so that I could keep things very like business I I operate my my side hustle as I call it as like a service so mm -hmm. I'm not giving anyone a girlfriend experience I I do connect as as much as any like therapist can connect with a, a patient or a, a client I think that's totally legitimate like to have something when you're doing that kind of sex work and you know, we, we talk about how sex work is work, and I, and I believe that, but it's a different kind of work. There's an intimacy involved. Yeah. There's a making yourself vulnerable uh, involved in sex work. And a lot of people I know who've done sex work will hold something back, maybe not orgasms, particularly the male sex workers I've known, but there's something that they'll hold in reserve for partners, even for private time, for solo time, that they don't allow their clients to have access to. That's very common I think is a strategy emotionally for sex workers so that there's something in their erotic life, something in their sex life that's walled off from their work life. Mm -hmm. That said, you have a pattern here. You've carved a groove into yourself, as I'd like to say, where as orgasms mm -hmm. approach, you head them off at the pass. You derail them. And that's the problem you're having with your, yeah. your new girlfriend. Yeah. It's really annoying. It's fucking annoying because I will be screaming at my brain. We'll be like fighting internally 
And I'm like, no, I'm really, really close. Please let me have this. <laughs> <laughs> and you're probably dreading on some level with your girlfriend because you're worried that, you know, it's going to hurt her feelings if you don't come. As orgasm approaches, mm-hmm. that dialogue begins and it creates mm-hmm. a kind of performance mm-hmm. anxiety where you're making yourself anxious, which then derails the orgasm. So it's really the orgasm under assault, you know, two attempts to derail it, just the habit of derailing it. And then that internal dialogue, which isn't conducive to being in the moment and getting there. Right. And yeah. I don't think there's anything horophobic about that. You know, it's almost as if when you're with a client, you get almost there despite yourself and then you have to head it off. And so when you say like, if, if I was with a client, maybe this would be a little easier. There's nothing horophobic in that. If she was paying me, you fantasize about your girlfriend paying you, nothing horophobic in that. That sounds horror fantastic to me or horophilic. <laughs> you know, sex and sex work is different. I think that's okay. I think you can say that. And I think, you know, when you add sex together with intimacy, sex and sex work, I think, of course, is less than sex plus intimacy with somebody that you care about. Not that sex workers can't and don't care about their clients. They often do. I know a lot of sex workers who've had multi-year, decade relationships with clients that they care very deeply about and they feel very connected to. But the alchemy of sex plus stakes, not just sex plus intimacy, it's sex plus stakes, right? Because you want the sex Mm. to work with your girlfriend in a way that's different than the way you want sex to work with your clients, right? Yeah. Because you you almost feel like if I can't make the sex work with my girlfriend, she's going to go. She's going to leave. Yeah. I'm going to fail at this. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I also, I think there's a similar thing of like, if I don't perform well with the client, they're going to not come back. Mm-hmm. And there's like similar pressure. Yeah. I'm not sure it's performance with a, with a partner. I think it's connection, right? Cause you're mm-hmm. not just hitting marks yeah. with a partner. You're trying to, to connect. And, and I think also hit some marks, but you have to let yourself off the hitting the mark thing. You say that you can pull the trigger. So when you're with your partner and she almost gets you there, it sounds like you then begin to stimulate yourself and then you can climax. Mm-hmm. All right. You mm-hmm. need to lean into that. You need to to run with what works for you now with your partner and explain to your partner kind of what we just talked about, that you've always sort of held climaxing back with your clients to have something in reserve for your intimate partners or for yourself, but you carved a groove and you're going to have to carve a new groove and that's going to take some time. It did, This didn't happen overnight. Mm-hmm. The, the groove you carved into yourself uh, on the approach to orgasm with clients, that took a long time and many clients to really become a deep groove. You're going to carve a new groove with your girlfriend where you're going to let her get you as close as she possibly can. And then you're going to take over without guilt or shame. So you don't have to listen to that voice in your head saying, ah, I hope I don't have to take over. I hope I don't have to take over. And you got to get your girlfriend Mm -hmm. to say, when you take over, I'm going to be fine with that. I'm not going to give you any grief. I'm not going to make any sad faces. We're going to embrace it. (laughs) And then hopefully that, (laughs) <laughs> we'll begin to carve a new groove. And that point at which you have to jump in will get a little closer and a little closer to that point of orgasmic inevitability. And eventually you'll be in a new groove where you got so close that you came without having to begin to self-stimulate or grab your vibrator or whatever it is you've been doing at that moment or take the vibrator yeah. off your girlfriend's hands, whatever it is that you're doing at that moment, you will you will get there, but you have to give yourself permission to take as much time as you need 
to get there without guilt or shame, without feeling you have to apologize to your girlfriend and with your girlfriend's buy-in that she's not going to take it personally, that she understands not just that you have a hard time coming with someone who isn't a client, but the reason you now have a hard time coming with her, even though she arouses you and she can see that she arouses you is that you were holding that back specifically for someone like her. Mm-hmm. And so she should feel a bit honored by that, by your difficulties right now and your desire to get there. And this becomes like an, like something you two are going to work on together. And then imagine the champagne corks <laughs> popping when you do get there and the high fives. And you guys will have built that together when you find that new groove for yourself and figure out how to get there. But you can and you will. Thanks for seeing me. <laughs> I appreciate that. You're so welcome. <laughs> um, thank you for your call. I, I really enjoyed speaking with you. And give us a call. I bet, you know, sometimes it's just having permission to do what you got to do to get yeah. there makes it easier for people to get there in different ways. And if 100%. you've been really uptight about not wanting to disappoint your girlfriend or not wanting to disappoint yourself, just having her permission and your own permission to get there, however it takes, however you get there, to get there might make it easier. You might be surprised by how quickly you carve that new groove. Thanks, Dan. You're welcome. Thanks for listening. (laughs) I appreciate you. Appreciate you too. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Hey, Dan. I'm a 19-year-old straight girl, and my best friend in the world is a straight guy. We met in high school, and we've known each other for about four years, and we click so much that despite the fact that he's a conservative, Catholic, abstinent, straight edge, and I'm a liberal Jewish pot-smoking communist, we still manage to have an extremely strong connection. Now, we both known each other for so long and have such different goals in life that I don't think either one of us are really sexually attracted to the other. And a romantic relationship is absolutely off the table because it's not worth risking our friendship. That being said, we're both really physical people and we've kind of mentioned how we're a little touch-starved since coming out of our respective previous relationships. So I have two questions for you. Number one, is it possible to platonically cuddle between two straight friends of the opposite gender? And if so, do you have any examples on how to set boundaries so we can best preserve our friendship? Sure. Yeah, of course. Two friends of the opposite sex who have no sexual interest in one another for perfectly arbitrary reasons can cuddle, can cuddle platonically. That is definitely a thing that two people of the opposite sex who have decided that they are not attracted to each other for these arbitrary reasons like imaginary sky friends and being straight edge versus pot smoking and being a Catholic versus being a communist. These are all reasons that two people might decide that they're not right for each other. That might also be why two people decide once they've begun a platonic cuddling session that they can't resist each other because opposites attract. So there is some small risk here that you guys may decide to platonically cuddle. And then in the moment, whatever it is that draws you to him and whatever it is that draws him to you, that that's just going to catch fire and you guys are going to wind up going at it, but it's a risk you're just going to have to take or the touch you'd like to have in your lives right now, which for some reason you can only get from each other. My advice, go for it. Go for it. Cuddle the shit out of this boy. Cuddle the fuck out of this boy. Just don't be surprised 
if in the end, after seven or eight platonic cuddle sessions, you guys have escalated to consensual, thoughtful, considered, opted in, ongoing verbal consent, full-on fucking. Also a thing that can happen to two people who are attempting to platonically cuddle and has happened to two people who are attempting to platonically cuddle. Hey, Dan, Nancy, and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. I am a 26-year-old man living in the uh, inland northwest, and I have a social media question for you. So I was doing some totally benign Instagram stalking of a friend's account the other day, and I made a probably embarrassing discovery. I discovered that uh, this friend, who incidentally is a straight married man, follows several erotic Instagram accounts ranging from the tasteful to the sensual and all the way up to the fetish. He has also liked some specific photos from these accounts, which give me a good idea of what he's into. Now, I feel bad for having discovered this, and usually I wouldn't care. I mean, he's entitled to jerk off to whatever he wants to jerk off to, like whatever he likes. But my issue is, is that this is, you know, viewable by anyone who has followed him on social media, and that includes friends, family members, so on and so forth. So my question is whether I should discreetly let him know that he's letting all his friends and followers who care to investigate his profile know the kind of stuff that gets him off? Or maybe should I just take this secret to the grave with me? This seems to me to be a do unto others as you would have them do unto you moment. If the shoes were on the other feet, if he had stumbled over your Instagram account or dug through your Instagram account or done some light stalking of your Instagram account or someone else had, and they'd noticed you were following a bunch of fetish accounts and figured that you weren't aware that this was public and that other people could see the accounts that you were following and see what you were liking and make assumptions about what you might be jerking off to. Would you want that person to give you a heads up? And I think the answer to that question is, yeah, you would want that person to let you know to give you the heads up, to tell you that this is public in case you weren't already aware that it was public so that you could create, as so many people have created, a second Instagram account where you can follow all the kinky, weird, or inappropriate shit that you don't want your friends or coworkers or kids or acquaintances or spouses to see. So if I were you, I would, after applying the golden rule, the do unto others, you would have them do unto you to this, I would give him a call. Maybe send him a text message. You can include a face-saving little white lie. You can say, Instagram, let me know. We follow a couple of the same accounts and I noticed dot, 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 just wanted to let you know dot, 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 this is public. So that, you know, I'm sure you have your own kinks, your own weirdnesses, uh, your own fetishes. I'm sure you follow some people on Instagram purely for the eye candy. And we're all in this sex thing together. So even if it's a lie saying, I noticed we follow a couple of the same accounts. Did you know? Just wanted you to know. Wanted you to give the heads up. It just communicates to him that you're not judging him, shaming him around his kinks or sexual interests just by acknowledging, even if it's a little white lie, that you have a few kinks of your own, which I assume that you do. And a few accounts you follow on Instagram just to 
jack off to or jack off to the memory to or jack off to the mental images that they put into your head that you can access on your solo decks later. So, yeah, give them the heads up, the heads up that you yourself, that I myself would like to be given if those shoes were on the other feet. Before we get to listener comments this week, let's read some of your tweets. G.J. Wyatt tweets, Thank you, Dan Savage and the Savage Lovecast team. Yesterday, a good friend said their teen has a new name and new pronouns. And thanks to you, I was able to have an intelligent conversation with my friend about it. Hashtag LGBTQIA. Thank you, G.J. That's very gratifying to read. And thank you for being there for your friend. Mint Owl tweets, I'd like to hear a fake Dan Savage take on this. Mint's tweet linked to a story about William Amos, a Canadian politician who's stepping back from his duties, but not resigning after, quote, urinating without realizing he was on camera during a virtual session of the House of Commons, reports the CBC. This was the second time the MP has been, quote, caught unawares on webcam. So his colleagues had already seen his dick once before. My take. Well, after being invited to his second orgy, the French philosopher Voltaire is alleged to have said, once a philosopher, twice a pervert. About Amos, I might say, once caught unawares, twice a pervert. Not that there's anything wrong with being a pervert, some of my best friends and all that, but there's a time and a place for exposing yourself online. And unless you're a camboy, work isn't the time or the place. And finally, Fallon Johnson tweets, at fake Dan Savage dropping some indigenous history on the Savage Lovecast while ripping Rick Santorum really made my morning. He said Iroquois instead of Haudenosaunee, but I'll let it slide. I didn't know Iroquois wasn't the name used by the five nations of the Haudenosaunee Federation or that Iroquois was considered a derogatory term until you dropped that on me, Fallon. Thank you for the correction. Fallon is the host of Unreserved, a podcast about Canada's indigenous communities and cultures and the co-host of The Secret Life of Canada. I have to say, I binged The Secret Life of Canada over the weekend, and I really enjoyed it. There's an episode about a top-secret aircraft carrier the Allies tried to build in Canada during World War II, a ship made entirely out of ice, no shit ice. It was a fascinating listen, and I am looking forward to the episode that is sure to be coming about MP William Amos. All right, thanks to everybody who posted about the show to your social media accounts this week. We really appreciate it. And now, listener comments. Hi, Dan. As a furry, I appreciated your interview with Matt Baum in uh, Podcast 761. He clearly seems to get us, and I appreciate the conversation you two had. If I may add some perspective uh, from someone with you know over 20 years in the furry fandom, I think an important thing is not to only compare the fandom to fetish communities, but also to other fandom communities, like, say, you know Star Trek. Because furries, by and large, are fans of each other. We have our own artists that draw our own original characters. You know, we're fans of each other's stuff, art, writing, etc. By and large, you know, most of the artwork is of our own original characters and stuff like that. Whereas, like Star Trek, which is owned by Paramount, has to worry about lawyers. You know, if uh, Paramount's legal department basically declared open season on fan art, costuming, fan events, whatever, and let people do whatever they wanted without having to worry about a cease and desist, the, the Star Trek fandom would probably be so flooded with, with with porn and fan art and what have you that someone, you guys, would be declaring it possibly a fetish community within a year. As Matt Baum pointed out, you know, you know, furries are people and people are sexual, but you know, the furry fandom is not inherently sexual, even if many of us are. Hi, Dan. I was just calling to respond to the caller in your last episode who was talking about 
a man who stood up in her wife's lecture to talk about how he was equally oppressed to the LGBT community. Uh, I think one piece of the conversation you missed is that this was a straight man standing up to say that he was equally oppressed in a conversation with a queer woman. And I think what was going on in some ways was he was trying to minimize her experience of oppression and the experiences of the queer community by stating that he was experiencing equal oppression. And I think that's bullshit. I think that she was right to shut him down. Hey, Dan, this is a thought for the trans dude who's been living the best four years of his life. That is awesome. Congratulations. I'm wondering if what's happening here is that your standards have just gone way up since you've started loving yourself and living out who you really are. As we get older, as we get to know ourselves better, I just came out about five years ago, so I feel like I'm going through the same transformation of being picky And rightfully so, because you're amazing and uh, you deserve the best of the best. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for me or a comment about this week's show? There are two ways to get them to us. You can call us at 206-302-2064, or you can use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. This Thursday, June 3rd at noon Pacific time, I'll be doing another sack launch exclusively for Savage Lovecast Magnum subscribers. The last one, the first one, the first sack launch was a blast. We all got to know each other a little better in the Zoom chat, and I answered a bunch of questions for Magnum subscribers. If you're already a Magnum subscriber, you don't need to do anything. We'll send out a meeting link to everyone on Thursday morning. If you're not already a Magnum subscriber, head to savagelovecast.com and become one all access ad-free episodes exclusive content and an invitation to these monthly get-togethers with me sack lunch space is limited so make sure you join the link right at follow me on twitter at fake dan savage the savage Lovecast is produced every week by nancy hartunian and me and the tech savvy at rescue and nancy we'll all be back at you next week with an installment of the savage Lovecast. thank you for downloading